Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So, this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me, Michael Adams, in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders, past and present. This podcast episode has frequent references to sex, homophobia, persecution, mental illness and suicide. It also includes descriptions of murder, corporal and capital punishment and post-mortem dissection. Details given are not gratuitous, but listener discretion is strongly advised. It's 1.30 in the afternoon on Tuesday the 5th of March 1872 and it's as hot as hell in Melbourne. In his studio on Burke Street East, well-known city photographer William Davies has a couple of unusual customers. Ned Feeney, an Irishman in his mid-thirties, is dark-haired with a big bushy beard. He's a stout fellow who stands around 5'6". His very handsome companion, Charlie Marks, is a decade younger also dark-haired, with big mutton chops, and he's about the same height, though he tends to slender. Both are dressed similarly. White shirts, coats, vests, grey trousers, black shoes that are a little scuffed. What sets Ned and Charlie apart from Mr Davies' typical studio customers isn't that they've had a bit to drink. Many people who come into his premises have never had their photographs taken before, and they steady their nerves with a glass or two of colonial wine. No, what makes these men different from any others who've previously come to place themselves before Mr Davies' camera is that they've brought with them large horse pistols, and they want to pose with these guns. Mr Davies jokingly suggests, well, if you're going to look like bushrangers, you should at least take off your coats, vests and neckerchiefs. The men do so and loosen their thin ties to look even more louche. Then Mr Davies leaves them in the hands of his camera operator, James Stewart. In a coincidence, James has met Ned and Charles just two days earlier, Sunday, aboard the steamship Adina, where Charles works as an assistant steward. 
or at least where he did work. Adina has just an hour or so ago steamed off on schedule and without Charlie Marks. He's forsaken a good job to be here with Ned Feeney. Ned, who's also been fired in the past week from his good job at Melbourne Hospital. A fair bit of alcohol has been taken by these men since then, including this morning, and Ned appears depressed in drink, though Charlie is elated and in control of what he wants from the camera. Charlie doesn't want them posed separately, as is usual for the narrow carte de visite format. Charlie wants him and Ned in the picture together. Mr. Stewart says, you'll have to stand close. Oh, we'll stand close, Charlie replies. Ned's despondency seems to lift as they get themselves ready. The men lark about with the pistols and even point them at each other's faces. Charlie is getting more excited and Ned tells him to calm himself. They assume their preferred position. Rather than stand shoulder to shoulder so that they might brandish their weapons and glare into the camera, as would be expected of bold bushrangers, Ned and Charlie stand face to face, just a few feet apart, and stare into each other's eyes. Charlie lifts his pistol and presses it to Ned's heart. Ned doesn't raise his weapon, so Charlie does it for him and places the muzzle of Ned's gun against his own breast. Mr. Stewart takes the photograph. While they're preparing for another picture, Charlie turns around suddenly and puts his pistol to Mr. Stewart's head. Die, he shouts, pulling the trigger. Nothing happens. The gun is neither cocked nor loaded. Nevertheless, Mr. Stewart's heart misses a beat. He's alarmed, but he tries to laugh it off as a prank. As it is, Ned and Charles put their pistols away for the next successful photograph. But they still stand face to face, and they join hands. This is not a handshake. Rather, it's the tender touch between two men who love each other. Love each other in a world that hates them. Mr. Stewart makes the picture. A century and a half later, these two photographs are among the most haunting images in Australian history. I'm Michael Adams and you're listening to Posing with Pistols, which is part three of the four-part Forgotten Australian miniseries Murder in the Treasury Gardens. Part four will go on release soon, but you can hear the finale right now ad-free as a Forgotten Australia supporter. Patreon and Apple links are in your show notes. After Ned and Charlie had posed for their photographs together, Charlie wanted their solo portraits taken. Ned refused. He said he'd only pose with Charlie. Charlie was not pleased about this, but in his general excitement, he soon got over it. Ned sat on a chair thoughtfully as Charlie stood for the camera alone. In this picture, Charlie is strikingly handsome, clear eyes staring into the lens, his gaze cool and direct. He leans casually, right elbow on a prop plinth, a man at ease. Photo session finished, Ned and Charlie ordered a couple of copies of each picture. Mr. Davies said that he'd need a deposit, and Charlie produced a one-pound note. Having received his change, they said their goodbyes. Ned and Charlie knew they would never pay the balance, 
and that they'd never see the photographs. The images weren't meant for them. They were meant for the world, to show us who they'd been, what they'd meant to each other, and what they were about to do. If a picture's worth a thousand words, these photos were worthy of a novel. Yet actual words still needed to be written by Ned and Charles for their nearest and dearest, and the men also wanted to personally farewell the best friends they'd made in the short sad time they'd been in Melbourne. Ned and Charlie arrived at Mr Abraham Briscoe Clay's wine shop at 3.30. The Telegraph newspaper would describe Mr Clay's Burke Street bar as Ned and Charlie's usual trysting place, which strongly suggested that theirs was more than a platonic friendship. Ned and Charlie, already a little drunk, ordered two wines. They went through a glass door into the back room with their drinks and they took with them a large quantity of writing paper and envelopes. Mr Clay observed as they drank and composed letters. Charlie, he said, seemed very excited and very talkative, while Ned was thoughtful and seemed very sleepily inclined. Charlie hovered at Ned's shoulder, seemingly telling him what to write and who to write to. Mr Clay thought that Charlie was firmly in charge. This, he would say, had been the case of late, and perhaps that was little wonder given Ned's emotional and mental distress. After all, it had only been last Friday night that Charlie had told Mr Clay he was worried that Ned, who a month earlier had tried to kill himself, had disappeared again to attempt self-destruction. But Mr Clay would say that Charlie's hold over Ned was greater than that, greater than a friend caring for another friend, and sometimes Ned shied away from him. The Telegraph would report, quote, he seemingly possessed an extraordinary power over his friend, who, although he tried to avoid him, was as a child in his presence and would obey his slightest request. Mr Clay reckoned he'd seen something like this before when he'd gone to one of Professor Busbell's shows. The professor was an electrobiologist who, for more than a decade, had been touring his huckster pseudoscience around the colonies. His shtick included mesmerism, known these days as hypnosis. Mr Clay said Charlie's control over Ned was similar to how the professor would sway an audience to do his bidding. Quote, All volition on Feeney's part had apparently ceased and was succeeded by a complete surrender to the domination of Marx's mind. Their conduct, both while writing and after the letters were finished, was extraordinary in the extreme. Based on what Mr Clay had told them, the Telegraph's report strayed close to scandalous. Charlie was, quote, more than usually affectionate and went so far as to fondle his friend, putting his arms around his neck and almost kissing him, and then lying down and resting his head on Fenny's lap, at the same time repeating his old story that he could not live without Ned. The men were in the back room for 45 minutes or so. Around four o'clock, Back in the bar, Charlie then made a surprising announcement. We are going home tomorrow, he said. Mrs Clay was astonished by this sudden decision, but Ned confirmed it was true. As a parting gift, Ned presented Mrs Clay with a gold morning ring. That's morning as in M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Morning rings were common in the 19th century. They were usually inscribed with the name and date of death of the loved one, 
and sometimes included an image of the deceased or some motto. Ned told Mrs Clay, You have always been very kind to us and I wish to give it as a testimonial of our esteem. But hearing this, Charlie protested, saying, Oh, but Jack will want it. This was a reference to Ned and Charlie's mutual friend Jack Burton, who sometimes minded their belongings and ran little errands for them. Despite supposedly being under Charlie's mesmeric powers, Ned refused to be told what to do. Just as he'd refused to sit for a solo portrait at Mr. Davies' studio, despite that being Charlie's wish. Instead, he told Charlie, It is my ring, I bought it, and I am going to give it to Mrs. Clay. Ned had bought the morning ring earlier that day, before their visit to the studio. It wasn't going to be in memory of anyone, except himself. Charlie now agreed that Mrs. Clay should have the ring, but they'd both make a present of it. She was very uncomfortable with all of this. A mourning ring wasn't just any piece of jewellery. You wore one on your finger to remember the dead, and Ned and Charlie were standing right in front of her, very much alive. Mrs. Clay went to ask her husband quietly whether she should accept the ring. Mr. Clay said no, she shouldn't. But before Mrs. Clay had to make a scene, Ned seemed to sense her reluctance and said instead of taking it as a gift, would Mrs. Clay simply keep the ring safe for him? She was relieved, at least until Charlie wrote something on a slip of paper and handed it to her. It read, In memory of E.F. and C.M., Edward Feeney and Charles Marks. Charlie told her, Have this engraved on the ring, and if Mr. Clay won't allow you to have it engraved, give me the ring and I will go to a jeweller and get it done. Perhaps hoping to distract from this awkwardness, Mr. Clay suggested Ned and Charlie have something to eat, and he dished up oysters and bread and butter with a bottle of wine. As they were partaking, Ned abruptly pulled out a large horse pistol and pointed it at the roof. Mr. Clay was not happy. He would recall, I got round and held his hand and said, No man plays thus with pistols. Marks ran to me and got hold of my hand and took the pistol and said, What the devil are you doing, Ned? Mr. Clay said it was a stupid thing to do, particularly as the pistol appeared to be loaded. Charlie replied, Oh no, it's not loaded, it's only charged with paper. Ned said to Mr. Clay, I have been a soldier and know how to handle a pistol. The men resumed eating and drinking. But Mr. Clay noticed that Charlie, too, had a similar pistol tucked into his coat. Around 4.20, Ned and Charlie got up to leave. Ned said to Mr. and Mrs. Clay, Goodbye, I shall be back again. But Charlie contradicted him, saying, Oh, no you won't, come along. To Mr. and Mrs. Clay, Charlie said, We shall not see you again. With that, Mr. Clay said, Charlie dragged Ned out into the sweltering heat of the late afternoon. It was just a ten-minute walk to the Treasury Gardens. Back in the wine shop, Mr. and Mrs. Clay were unsettled and suspicious. Their disquiet became panic, though, when they went into the back room. Charlie had left two letters on the floor and fragments of writing besides. The letters weren't in envelopes and he'd also left a small pistol bullet about the size of a dried pea. One of the letters read, My dear mother, I send you this. You will never hear from me again. When you hear from Jack Burton, I shall be in eternity. 
send out money to put a headstone to us. Two of us die as brothers. P.S. Leave Louise, that was his sister, what you're intending on leaving me. I can say no more, and I am, dear, yours while on earth, Charlie. Heaven have mercy and receive our souls. It concluded, God bless you all, we die in a short time. Everything suddenly came into terrible focus for Mr. and Mrs. Clay. The talk last night about an appointment in the Treasury Gardens, and just now about going home. The morning ring and the inscription, this letter and the bullet, the farewell that had just seemed so final. Mr. Clay hurried outside and found a police constable. Two men, he told the officer, are planning a double suicide in the Treasury Gardens. They're on their way there right now but the cop wouldn't leave his beat. He told Mr. Clay to take his concerns to the detective's office. Mr. Clay rushed there and repeated his story. The detectives weren't overly interested either, but decided they would send a man to the Treasury Gardens, all in good time. By then, Ned and Charlie were in the Treasury Gardens. These attractive parklands were increasingly used for recreation and people used their paths as thoroughfares between the city and Fitzroy and East Melbourne. While quite by the standards of the city, the Treasury Gardens were far from deserted on a Tuesday afternoon. Ned and Charlie went to a little bank of lawn that sloped gently to a small creek, where weeping willows provided a measure of shade and seclusion. This was it. The end. Ned and Charlie struck the pose they'd rehearsed in the photographer's studio, stood a few feet apart with their pistols pointed at each other. Constable John Balfour, who was down from Echuca that morning as the arresting officer in the scandalous Q elopement case, was in Gipp Street near Fitzroy Gardens when he heard the gunshot and saw smoke rising from the greenery in the lower Treasury Gardens. Constable Balfour rushed towards the scene. A gardener named Michael Kane had got there first. What Mr. Kane saw in the glade was bewildering and it was terrible. A man was on his back, right arm raised and right foot bent. He'd been shot in the chest. Part of the man's bloody white shirt was burning. Mr. Kane tore it away and threw it in the creek. The wounded man was still breathing, but he wouldn't last long. Another man lay on his back six feet away, right hand across his chest, one hand bleeding from minor wounds. Otherwise, he seemed unharmed and unconcerned because he had a lit cigar in his mouth. Between the two men on the lawn lay a large pistol, but it was clear this was not the weapon that had just been used to mortally wound the dying man. The pistol on the ground was cocked, loaded and unfired. Who shot you? Mr. Kane asked the man as he cradled his head. The man couldn't or wouldn't answer. By now, another fellow, a Mr. Bride, had arrived on the scene. Mr. Kane looked across at the cigar man. Was it you that shot him? You wretch, you shot him. The cigar man tried to get up from where he lay. Mr. Kane told Mr. Bride, hold him down, and Mr. Bride did. Gardener Thomas Ambrose, who'd been 60 yards away when the shot was fired, was next to arrive. He raced to get help and ran into Nicholas Bickford, Crown Lands bailiff, and told him that a man had been shot near the creek. 
Then Thomas Ambrose ran towards the Treasury building to summon official help. As it would happen, Victoria's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. William McRae, who kept an office in the building, was just leaving by the back. The gardener saw him and urged Dr. McRae to come at once. Meanwhile, Constable Balfour had arrived at the scene of the shooting. Looking at the wounded man, he knew he wasn't going to make it. Constable Balfour went to the other fellow. The chap's right index finger, his trigger finger, was bloody. Are you wounded? Constable Balfour asked. The man said he was fine, that he was an old campaigner. Constable Balfour asked, what happened? The man replied, he tried to shoot me, but he could not. Bailiff Nicholas Bickford piped up, but you shot him though. The man did not reply to this. Dr. McRae arrived. There were nine bullet holes in the dying man's chest. Some of these pea-sized projectiles, blown from the pistol with shot, had cut through the man and emerged from his back. One of the dying man's hands was also grazed as bullets had passed by it. The man was unresponsive. There was nothing Dr. McRae could do. And in a matter of moments, the man was dead. Constable Balfour again asked the survivor what happened. This time he answered, We both came here to die. Then he claimed, He shot himself. And then he added, All will be explained. What Constable Balfour wanted explained was this. If the dead man had shot himself, as the man had just claimed, then where was that pistol? The cigar man raised himself up on an elbow. There were two pistols. There must be another one somewhere. The constable and the witnesses looked around, and they saw it in a shallow creek, nearly ten feet from the dead man, yet just three feet from the survivor. Constable Balfour lifted the pistol from the water. It had been recently fired, and it had exploded when it had discharged. The lock was shattered, and the muzzle had burst open. A two-inch piece of barrel was missing. The pistol had been grossly overloaded before it had been fired. Constable Balfour had noted the injury to the survivor's trigger finger, and he had a hole in his coat. Searching him, Constable Balfour found the missing piece of barrel inside. The coat's wadding had prevented the piece of shrapnel from penetrating the man's chest. The constable searched the suspect's coat pockets. He found a powder flask, 15 shillings in silver, and two letters. These letters had been written to Ned, the survivor, by the dead man, Charlie. There was also a letter that he, Ned, had written to his mother, the contents of which would not be disclosed but which would be described as being close in tone to the one Charlie had left in the wine shop. In other words, a suicide letter. When the constable searched Charlie's clothes, he recovered more little bullets like the ones that had riddled his body. There was also a box of percussion caps and three letters, two of which had been written by Ned. Even a cursory glance at the contents of these letters started to tell the story. A story that would be a sensation. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Constable Balfour made arrangements for the body of Charlie Marks to be taken to the morgue at Prince's Bridge. He placed Ned Feeney 
under arrest. As Charlie's corpse was loaded into a cab, Ned stood nearby and, as the Argus reported, was, quote, trying to relight the cigar, which had gone out during the time that the constable was searching him, and he was smoking again when driven away from the ground. Much would be made in the newspapers about Ned chugging on his cigar in the immediate aftermath of the shooting. It seemed callous and cold-blooded. But some witnesses painted a different picture. They would say the cigar was unlit, or that Ned did not actively puff on it. This would seem to indicate that Ned had been in shock. Indeed, the Argus reported, quote, He appeared to be stupid, whether from recent drinking or the stunning effect which might have been produced by the explosion of the pistol. Ned had to be stunned and deeply in shock, not to mention horrified, at what he'd just done and at what Charlie had not done. They were both supposed to be in eternity. Instead, Ned was still on earth, and from now on, his life would be hell. Constable Balfour took Ned in a cab to the city watch house. It wasn't long before word came from the detective office. Ned Feeney was known to have suicidal tendencies and would need to be closely watched. He must not be allowed to hang himself, in order that he might be hanged. A police officer visited Mr. and Mrs. Clay's wine shop to tell them a man had indeed been shot in the Treasury Gardens, just as they'd warned. So, what did they know about these two fellows? Detectives wanted this information, as did the city's newspaper reporters. Mr. Clay spoke freely to just about everyone. What he told them was related in the following day's newspapers. The Telegraph calling the tragedy one of the most extraordinary cases of shooting that has ever startled the Melbourne public. From the first, universally, it was portrayed as a mutual murder pact gone wrong. Ned and Charlie had planned to kill themselves by killing each other. The Telegraph's version of what Ned said to Constable Balfour was, quote, We were to have died together, and he tried to shoot me, but could not. The paper said, There is something quite romantic about the tragic occurrence. It was using romantic as in the sense of romantic love, but also in the wider sense of romance, defined by the Macquarie Dictionary as, quote, a tale depicting heroic or marvellous achievements, colourful events or scenes, chivalrous devotion, unusual, even supernatural experiences, or other matters of a kind to appeal to the imagination. The Argus agreed, saying the case was, quote, a narrative more resembling the weird stories of horror told by Edgar Allan Poe than a sober statement of facts. The two would appear to have mutually agreed to kill each other in a sort of friendly duel. When each man had shot the other, the Argus said, quote, neither would survive to give a key to the mysterious finding of the two bodies. Of course, that wasn't true. Ned and Charlie had had their photos made and there could be no clearer visual expression of their intentions and of their affections for one another. While Melbourne journalists left us thousands and thousands of words describing the Treasury Gardens tragedy, and we can read court statements and even Ned and Charlie's own letters, we can also turn to the private daily thoughts of a very frank and very jaded justice system insider. This was John Buckley Castillo, Governor of Melbourne Jail. In this role since 1869, he'd played host to the colony's worst criminals, and Mr. Castillo had been up on the gallows platform a half a dozen times when men had been hanged. 
Later, Mr. Castillo was to be Ned Kelly's last friend on Earth. But on the 6th of March, 1872, knowing that Ned Feeney would soon be in his care, the governor wrote in his diary, quote, There was another highly sensational occurrence took place yesterday. Two men who had been warders in the hospital and discharged for drunkenness professed an almost or quite romantic affection for each other and, feeling disappointed with the world, made up their minds to leave it together. He continued, After plentifully partaking of colonial wine, they went into the park armed with horse pistols, which were intended for use one against the other, not out of animosity, but in brotherly love, trusting their shades would fly to the same sphere and there be united. Shades is an archaic term for souls. Mr. Castillo went on, quote, It appears they stood face to face, each with a pistol to each other's breast. By some accident, however, only one fired, with deadly effect, for the man shot at fell dead on the ground. Melbourne's newspapers only lightly sketched Ned Feeney's background. This boiled down to his age, that he was Irish, that he'd served as a soldier in New Zealand, and that he'd lately worked as a Melbourne hospital wardsman. Most readers, particularly those Ned Feeney's age and older, knew all about the horrors of the Irish potato famine, some from their own experience. So writers wouldn't have felt it necessary to point out that the accused man had lived through this disaster as a child. Similarly, the newspapers might have taken it as given that readers would know Ned had seen horrors on the battlefield and in the hospital. These days, of course, we pay far more attention to the lasting effects of trauma. Back then, they weren't scientifically or medically known. While Edgar Allan Poe had decades earlier invented detective fiction, it'd be another 20 years before William James published The Principles of Psychology the foundational text for our modern attempts to understand the mind. Though Melbourne's newspaper writers didn't demonstrate much curiosity about Ned's background, and even if they weren't in a position to understand how he might have been shaped by traumatic experiences, they were very interested in everything they could find out about what had happened in Ned and Charlie's lives over the past year, and particularly over the past month. Readers learned about Ned's attempted suicide, his drinking, and that he'd been fired from Melbourne Hospital. They also read about Charlie's resignation from the wards, his new role on the steamship Adina, and his own supposed suicide bid. Readers learned about their frequent visits to the wine shop and their intensely affectionate friendship. Their surviving incriminating letters that they'd consciously decided not to destroy and have on their persons when they were found were also published in full. While the quiet part wouldn't be said out loud directly in print, there were plenty of insinuations. Mr. Clay talked of Charlie's unusual fondness of late towards Ned, as the Argus said, quote, more like that of a man for a woman, or a woman for a man, than that which subsists between even intimate friends of the same sex. Marx used to put his arm around Feeney, and he often said he could not live without Feeney. Mr. Clay's opinion on how the relationship had devolved was paraphrased this way, quote, Marx had a suicidal mania and feeling, as he said, that he could not live without Feeney was induced by his madness upon finding out that Feeney was also suicidally inclined to plan with the persistency and ingenuity of a lunatic, a means by which both should end their days together. Other newspapers carried similar reports. 
Mr. Clay also told them of the Monday night conversation in the wine shop, when Charlie had abruptly said he had an appointment in the Treasury Gardens and wondered what time they closed. Mr. Clay reckoned that he, Mr. Clay had replied, Is it a young lady? You can go to the gardens and no doubt she will be waiting for you. Why, given everything else he'd said, did Mr. Clay assume there was a young lady involved? This was possibly a retroactive attempt to make it seem feasible that both Charlie and Ned had been heterosexual, or that Mr. Clay at least had reason to believe them to be so, as this might protect him from allegations he'd harboured homosexuals. It is also possible Ned and Charlie were individually or together asexual or bisexual, and that heterosexual relationships did play a role in the last few weeks of their lives. Yet the evidence seems strongly against it, as we'll hear, and it certainly wasn't what was believed at the time. In any event, that Monday night in the wine shop, Charlie had told Mr. Clay that his mysterious Treasury Gardens appointment was with Ned Feeney. Now, it made tragic sense. But furthering the idea there was a heterosexual motive for the tragedy, the Argus reported, quote, Mr. Clay was under the impression that there was a young woman in the case and that she had something to do with Feeney's previous attempt at self-destruction, but he did not think there was any rivalry or that both were in love with the same woman. Mr. Clay said Charlie had been in control on Tuesday afternoon and he believed it had been Charlie who'd arranged the details of the duel. The Telegraph, allowing it was only judging from the information to hand, reckoned of the case, quote, it seems to have been one of extraordinary insanity and suicidal mania on the part of both men. The Age concluded of Ned, From inquiries that were afterwards made, it seemed doubtful whether he was in a sound state of mind at the time. What's clear from these reports, all of which were published on the 6th and 7th of March, was that it was widely believed Ned Feeney had been insane and that he'd been under the spell of Charles Marx, who was also insane. The evidence that would come out in the letters we heard in part two confirmed that Ned was deeply depressed and at one time recently had intended to break off his intimacy with Charlie, but then they'd resumed their relationship in the days before the shooting. There was, as we've heard, also some evidence that Ned was not completely under Charlie's control. So Mr. Clay's version of events, with Charlie calling the shots and a woman involved, might have been skewed to give his friend Ned the best chance in the courts. Ned Feeney's life had recently become so nightmarish that he'd wanted to end it. Now, he was in the city watch house, accused of murdering his best friend, their intimacy splashed across the newspapers as he anticipated further exposure and very likely execution. What could Ned say to defend himself? What could he say that wouldn't dig him even deeper into a shameful grave? The next morning at City Police Court, Ned Feeney was charged with murder and remanded to Melbourne Jail until the inquest and inevitable trial. Ned was now one of the guests in what was nicknamed Castio's Castle. Ned was visited in his cell by several friends, who were greatly sympathetic. When solicitor Frank Stephen, who'd been engaged for his defence, came to see Ned, he found him in low spirits. Yet Ned was firm in the decision he'd made. In the aftermath of the shooting, as Charlie lay dying, Ned had told Constable John Balfour, all will be explained. 
but Ned had decided he wasn't going to explain a single thing, not even to his own legal defenders. Ned wouldn't say another word about what had happened in the Treasury Gardens. But in the immediate aftermath of the tragedy, while he was in shock, with gun smoke still in the air and the gunshot still echoing in his ears, Ned's claims had included that Charlie had shot himself. The Age reported, quote, It is almost certain that the fatal shot must have been fired by Feeney, as it was a matter of impossibility for Marks to have inflicted the injuries on himself. The weapons were large horse pistols, crammed nearly to the muzzle with small bullets. The Argus reported that Ned and Charlie's troubles might have been over a lady. A witness, Henry James, who lived at the Great Britain Hotel in Flinders Street, told the paper he knew the men. Mr. James, quote, stated that the cause of the tragic occurrence was the two men being in love with one woman who was employed at the hospital. Marks told him they were both courting this woman and that it was not the first time they had fixed their affections upon the same object, both having courted one girl in Portsmouth. Marks tried to prove, in a conversation, that he was unaware of his chums being in love with the same girl and that Feeney was much annoyed at the selection of one woman by both occurring so often and said that, in consequence, friendship between the two must cease. Did this happen? It is possible. But there was nothing else that supported the claim the men had known each other before Australia, much less that they had a history of courting the same women. Henry James was the witness who'd also supposedly heard from Charlie that he, Charlie, had tried to kill himself as a reaction to Ned's suicide attempts. Charlie had supposedly said he was going to try again when the Adena reached Warrnambool and had even given Henry James a letter to pass on to Ned. Next, Mr James said, Charlie had supposedly been aboard the Adena with the woman that both he and Ned loved. He was, quote, very frightened that Feeney should hear of it before Marks himself should tell him. This supposedly had been on the Sunday before the tragedy. Yet Ned and Charlie had been seen together on Adena that day by photographer's assistant James Stewart. Granted, Mr Stewart might not have noted this woman, or the woman might have been aboard earlier. But Henry James also claimed that Ned and Charlie had slept that night in the same room at the Great Britain Hotel and, quote, were heard talking over this double mutual murder, which Marx at other times made no secret of, speaking openly about the proposal. This part of the Argus's coverage ended with, Henry James is to be a witness at the inquest. Yet Mr James wouldn't be, nor would he be called at trial, even though his supposed evidence would have been very valuable to the Crown's case. This suggests he was not reliable, perhaps making stuff up, stuff that might have been meant to save his mates from the shame of being labelled homosexual. It's also possible that Charlie had been telling Mr James stories about the woman in order to make it seem that his and Ned's distress was heterosexual in nature. Such beard activity was then a survival necessity. Dr Edward Barker, one of Colonial Melbourne's most ghoulish characters, performed the autopsy on Charlie Marks. Dr. Barker was known as the Hanging Doctor because he was fascinated by the gallows. Where should the knot be placed on the neck? Well, Dr. Barker had theories. Theories that he'd blithely talk about with unsuspecting guests at society dinner tables. Dr. Barker also tested out his theories in the field. 
not worried that they seem to increase rather than decrease suffering of hanged men. Working on Charlie's body, Dr. Barker noted gunpowder ingrained on the back of the right hand, which could have been grazed by bullets when he'd raised it in a defensive stance. Those bullets had pierced the heart and caused death. The wounds, Dr. Barker concluded, could not have been self-inflicted. Dr. Barker also inspected Charlie Marx's anus. He wanted to see if there were signs of sodomy. To his mind, there were. It should be noted that such evidence would today be laughed out of court. Even then, as we'll hear, thinking men believed this examination said more about Dr. Barker's prurience than about his devotion to medical science. The inquest into Charlie Marx's death was held on the afternoon of Thursday the 7th of March at the morgue by coroner Dr. Richard Yule. A crowd tried to get access, but there was only enough room for the coroner, jurymen, witnesses and reporters. Even still, people pushed up against windows and doors to see what they could. They were actually lucky they couldn't get inside. Melbourne was still baking. The morgue was claustrophobic and the air was sickening. Charlie's body was on display, and it had been slow cooking for 48 hours now. Melbourne Hospital's Frederick Rutherford provided confirmation that the accused and the deceased had worked as, respectively, wardsman and assistant wardsman. James Stewart, camera operator, testified to making the strange photos, which were now in evidence, as were the pistols. The Argus reported that, after the evidence of a few witnesses had been heard, one member of the jury begged to be released because the stink of the corpse was making him sick to the stomach. With an alternate sworn in, Dr. Yule let the man go, but he expressed hope that the complaint wasn't going to become contagious. To prevent that, and to lessen the suffering of all, self-styled chemist Mr. Frank Sullivan appeared opportunely with a tumbler of his experimental disinfectant. With a blowpipe in his mouth, he paced slowly around the room, adding chemical fumes to the sticky stench of decomposition. Mr. Clay testified. He said he knew the men more as friends than as customers. He said they'd been in his shop between seven and eight the night before the tragedy, and he started to explain what Charlie had said about his mysterious appointment, but the coroner cut him off. Mr. Yule said, just tell the jury what the men had done. Mr. Clay asked, Am I not to tell all that I heard and said? The coroner replied, The jury don't want a long story. They can read that in the newspapers. Tell us the essential facts. Dr. Yule did not want his court tainted with scandal. Mr. Clay related what we've heard. Ned and Charlie's Monday night visit, their return on Tuesday afternoon, the letter writing and the morning ring request. Ned brandishing the pistol and Charlie having a similar one tucked in his shirt. Mr. Clay also related Charlie's chilling farewell, you will never see us again, and how he, Mr. Clay, had gone for the police only to soon after learn it had been too late. Letters we've already heard, including those that sounded like declarations of love between the two men, were tendered in evidence. So was another mysterious letter fragment, seemingly written by Charles, that Mr. Clay had found in his wine shop. It read, My dear Mrs. Masters, why should I be considered frivolous? Oh God, any drive, a few minutes shall die. What this exactly meant wasn't clear. A further letter fragment had been started, Dear Jack. Yet there was another letter, 
seemingly written in a feminine hand that had been found on Ned. Here's how it was printed in the newspapers in full. Quote, Melbourne, 28th February. Ned, you wrong me very much when you speak about Marx. I assure you, his would be the last of my thoughts. If there was not another man in Melbourne, I would not cast a thought over him. Walk with him, that I did twice, but never again, Ned. Let me know when you can see me again once more, and then, as you like, let us be as strangers, and believe to be yours, etc., one who would wish you well, A. But looking at the original Public Record Office of Victoria capital case file is to see there was actually a blank and an X instead of the name Marks. This was because in the letter, which is no longer available, from which the transcription was made, the name had been illegible. The name Marks appeared in the margin with a question mark. So it was possible, but not confirmed, that this was who A had been talking about. Who was A? Was it the Annie that had been referred to in Charlie's letter fragment? A's letter was seen as evidence that a woman had come between them. But in what way? Had Ned been romantically interested in A, making him angry that she'd gone walking with Charlie, or with whoever was blank? Or had it been the other way around? Was Ned interested in Charlie or blank, but afraid that A might steal him away? What the letter did not contain was any sort of declaration of passion or love from A to Ned. If A was a woman, as was assumed, she would not have to keep these feelings secret. But as the letter read, she appeared to be extending the hand of friendship, while also acknowledging that he wanted them to be strangers. Gardener Thomas Ambrose told the inquest about hearing the shot, running to the spot and fetching Dr. McRae. In his evidence, Nicholas Bickford, Crownland's bailiff, cast doubt on one of the most striking images from the crime when he told the court, quote, A cigar, half burnt, was in Feeney's mouth. It was a light, but I did not see him take a draw at it all the time I was there. This fit with Ned being in shock rather than him being calm and cocky after having just killed his friend. Mr. Bickford said that the pistol between them was capped, loaded and at full cock. In other words, a pull on the trigger and it would have fired. He testified that he'd heard Ned say to Constable Balfour, quote, We came here to die together, but he's dead and I'm alive. He tried to do it, but could not. Mr. Bickford told the court he replied, But you shot him. Ned, he said, had made no reply to that. Constable Balfour testified about coming upon the dying or perhaps already dead Charlie Marks and the reclining Ned Feeney. He detailed what he'd found when he'd searched each man, the placement and condition of the pistols, and confirmed what Ned had said before his arrest. Dr. Barker testified about gunshot wounds to the heart being the cause of Charlie's death. The newspapers provided copious detail about the fatal wounds. But newspaper articles only alluded in the most discreet way to Dr. Barker's other observation. As the Argus put it, quote, there were statements made by the medical witness which went to confirm the interpretation that many had put upon the behaviours of the two men. Ned Feeney didn't say a word during the inquest, not even no, when he was asked if he'd like to put any questions. Nor did Ned betray any sort of emotion, maintaining a passive indifference. 
Having heard all he needed to hear, Coroner Dr Richard Yule summed up the law for the men of the jury. Two people, he said, could not legally agree to commit suicide. Therefore, he said, it was immaterial whether the man shot himself or was shot by the other. If Ned had assisted in Charles's suicide, then the offence was murder. Of course, if Ned had shot Charlie, for whatever reason, the offence was murder. The jury committed Ned to stand trial. If he was guilty, he'd automatically receive a death sentence. But whether he hanged or had his sentence commuted to life in prison, that would depend on whether the most powerful men in Melbourne could be moved to be merciful. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Posing with Pistols, part three of the four-part Forgotten Australia miniseries, Murder in the Treasury Gardens. The fourth and final part is available now to Patreon and Apple supporters, and it will go on general release pretty soon. As always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.